What is your name and rank? Silas Herrick, level one army colonel. No, your Rexorian name and rank. Hey, dickheads, I got pink laser beam of truth shooting straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We are your personal dickheads. We are hoping that the Rexorians replaced Anthony with a, <laughs> so he'd be a little kinder and nicer since the Adjustment Bureau episode. But if you're a longtime listener, you know why that is. Anyways, today we are talking about um, one of Dick's earliest and most famous short stories, one of the first where he talked about reality call and what is means to be human, human is. So before we get to that, let's uh, just introduce ourselves. I'm David Agronoff. I'm the author of Punk Rock Ghost Story and Ring of Fire. I'm Anthony Trevino, and I'm definitely not a Rexorian, despite what this dickhead really wants you to think. I'm the author of King Space Void, the horror comic fruition, and a handful of short stories in a very poorly entitled anthology. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. And he's Langhorn J. Tweed. <laughs> uh, Larry does all of our editing and puts up all the technical stuff and make sure that the videos have all kinds of good pictures. So he does a lot of the really hard work. So shout out to uh, Langhorn J. Tweed. Wow, I got a shout out on my own podcast. I know. But we just wanted to point out the hard work that you're doing. Um, because uh, he's the one that can do all that stuff. Anyways. Larry's um, the only reason this podcast ever sounds good. Right. Because <laughs> if it were just me and David, it'd sound like we were recording inside a shoebox. Yeah, and we have recordings out there on my YouTube channel you can listen to that are like that. It's just on the phone. But don't. But don't. So anyways, um, we've gotten a bunch of new listeners and some people that have jumped on board, and we really thank you and appreciate uh, you coming on. And uh, we hope to give you great PKD content. So, yeah, welcome. Welcome. Anyways. And welcome back. <laughs> so let's talk about... Human is. We're going to try to keep this episode short because it's a very short, short story. And we're and gonna a short film. Yeah, and uh, um, this is actually an episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. It's the first one we've done. We're trying to switch it up a little bit, and we'll do episodes throughout from here and there uh, mixed in with the movies because there's ten episodes of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams to choose from. This story was first published in Startling Stories in the winter of 1955. What else was published in that edition of Startling Stories? Well, oh, hey, I know that, right? Yeah. What else was in Startling Stories, Volume 32, Number 3? Well, there's uh, The Snows of Ganymede from Paul Anderson. There's a novelette from Robert F. Young entitled More Stately Mansions. The fantastic story from Winston Marks, Only with Thine Eyes. <laughs> Another great author, Robert Zacks. Have your past read... Oh. oh Have I your totally past read, mister? One. Yeah. Have your past read, mister? And Audrey's Moon by Thomas Kirsch. So, oh, shit, there's more. Yeah. Oh, oh, those are just the features. Those are the features. So, Paul Anderson... But, but wait, there's a, there's a feature that's called The Soul of a Robot, which... I would like to read. It's the third in a series, though. Oh. 
Yeah. Oh, it, it's not, those aren't articles. Those are just featured stories. Yeah. Right. Oh. So the Snows Academy is a full novel. There was a complete Paul Anderson novel. So that would be yeah. probably be the main selling point of this issue. And PKD might be the second biggest name in here, but he really didn't have a name for himself. At this point, he just had, uh, like Solar Lottery and World Jones made out as far as novels, I think. Yeah. At this point. But he so, had published a lot of short stories. He published a point. lot of short stories. So I'm sure like people who were regularly following these pulp magazines were looking forward to PKD's <laughs> stories. This story was written on February 2nd, uh, 1955. So pretty quick turnaround from when he wrote it to when it got published within oh. the year. So this wasn't in the, the grand period he calls, uh, where he pumped out a ton of stories in 1953. Yeah, it's... Well, I think what happened was he wrote an original draft of it and then did another draft. And so the final draft was written in February 2nd, 1955. And he... It's between The Hoodmaker and The Impossible Planet. Like, he'd written Hoodmaker before it and Impossible Planet after it. Okay. So... And Impossible Planet, is that also an episode of... Electric Dreams? Both Hoodmaker and Impossible Planet. Oh, they both are. They're oh, both okay. episodes, yeah. So he wrote three stories in a row that became Electric Dream episodes. Wow. And so I have PKD quote on the story. Um, he said, It's not what you look like or what planet you were born on. It's how kind you are. The quality of kindness to me dis- uh, distinguishes us from rocks and sticks and metal. And will forever, whatever shape we take, wherever we go, whatever we become. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, Anthony, you want to comment on that? No. Okay. Really? So, so we'll get to this later when we talk about the actual episode, but um, I actually think the episode expands on this theme even better than, than, than the story does. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. But, the, but what's cool is that it really gives us, this quote gives us a really good idea of, you know, what he was uh, going for with the idea. I also have a quote from 1976. Um, he had written, a student had written him a letter and was asking, and asked him a question. This was like a young, like high school student or something. Wait, sent, what, what year was this? 1976, this oh, quote okay. comes from. Okay. And he said, to me, she had asked a question about human is. He said, to me, this story states my early conclusions as to what is human. I have not really changed my views since I wrote the story back in the 50s. It's not what you look like or what planet you were born on. It's how kind you are, the quality of kindness to me. Oh, oh, so this is the same quote. It's it's just a longer version of it. I'm sorry. That was my bad in the notes. <laughs> but that's just the longer version of the same quote. So that all came from 1976, him talking about human is. Thanks. So... That's the two quotes that I have. I don't agree with him, but <laughs> yeah, it's a nice thought. <laughs> well, we'll get into that when we get into the story. So let's talk about what happens in the story. Larry. Does that mean it's time for the story, story breakdown? So what happens in Human Is, the story, Larry? All right, so Human Is. What? Okay, so we start... With a scientist and his wife at home, and the scientist is into what? What he's like Egon, right? Like spores, molds, and funguses, or I, something. Yeah, I think he makes mention of uh, ex- like 
like experimenting with parasites or things. Yeah, he's a yeah. Anyway, he's a dick, <laughs> uh, which is typical. Yeah, but, of a dick he's, story. A big, but he's like a dick. super dick. Yeah. He's no more he, of a dick than Hamilton dick. from Eye in the Sky. But it, there's more intent. In the, so in a the man can't be more invested in his work than tr- than than wanting to hang out with a kid. Yes. Anyway, Larry, story breakdown. Yeah, he hates food. He hates kids. <laughs> He kind of hates his wife. He's just an unpleasant just, guy. Yeah, and uh, his wife is just a typical uh, dick woman where she's, you know, sort of just going along with the abuse, hanging out, you doing the things she's supposed to do while he does his work and he's a, an asshole. They have a robot waiter. Which is kind of nice. And an automatic oven that can cook anything. Yeah. Anyway, so... They're going along. She's like, I want this kid. And he's like, fuck that kid. And then <laughs> so the kid comes over and says, I have, a, I have a tiger. And you see the dickishness when he's like, that's not a fucking tiger, you shithead. It's a cat. And I kill cats. So fuck you. And so then there's a letter that comes. And it says that he's got to go off on this trip to Rigel 4. Rex. Rexor 4? Rexor 4. All right, Rexor 4. I don't know Roman numerals, so and I can't remember oh what it God. was. <laughs> or till time on a clock with hands. Oh, what? Anyway. <laughs> when, I don't know. For some reason, Rexor 4, like, I just yeah. saw Rex from Pantera. And, like, okay. In my <laughs> so, mind. Was, like, an entire planet Beetle- dedicated to the is bases it, from Pantera? The, yeah. David, is yeah. it in the Beetlejuice system? I believe so. Uh, That's yeah. what he mentions, Beetlejuice. But. Which is a very bright and large That's star. That's great. Anyway, so <laughs> then he uh, he goes off and the wife, what's her name? Uh, Anthony, you have the book in front of you. Anthony. Jill. Oh, Jill. Jill. Yeah, it's Rexor. Uh, Jill hangs out with the kid for a week and she's like, oh, I love it. I hope my husband never comes back because he's an asshole. <laughs> And she's talking to her brother, and her brother's like, well, you know, yeah, he's an asshole, but he's busy, and shit happens, and you got to deal with it. Or you can divorce him. And she's like, yeah, I thought about divorcing that son of a bitch. I think I'm going to and then do a kid thing with another partner from the uh, the Bureau of Partners. And since they live in the Dickiverse, he's probably also going to be an asshole. Yeah, he is probably going to be an asshole, but at least it's a different asshole for her. And so he comes back, but he comes back different. Comes back super nice, speaking uh, in in English, but a very outdated English, even for the fifties. Even though this is in the future, on a colony somewhere, they've and, already made it to the colony. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. so he's a totally different person. He's nice. He loves food. He's cooking all the time. He's, he's playing with the kid. He loves the kid. I mean, him and the kid are like besties, and so he, uh, that's all great, and the wife is like, this is awesome, Jill. Jill's like, this is great, and then her brother's like, yeah, but that also means that he has a brain parasite, and he's a different person. <laughs> he's an alien, of course and we're going to have to kill him, and so she's like, well, fuck, that sucks that my husband's an alien. And so they go to court because bureaucracy and they, they're like, all right, so he's an alien, so we can kill him. I know it sucks, but right. So he's an alien. And Jill says, nope. Then they leave and they live happily ever after. 
with the kid. That's it. That's it. What's kind of interesting about this story that never gets explored, and I didn't hear Larry mention in the breakdown, is that Lester, was it Lester Herrick? Sure. Is that the main character in this book's name? Yeah, it is. He's still, his consciousness is still alive back on Rexor 4 in suspended animation, which sounds like a nightmare, but is an interesting thing to think about. He was setting up a sequel. Uh-huh. Is he that much of an asshole to deserve that? To deserve that kind of fate, though? He just kind of sucks. I mean, he's. Just, I mean, uh, but we're seeing the story from her from the wise perspective for the most part. So, I think um, if you're looking at the story from his perspective or from her perspective, like he is just a rather unpleasant guy. Yeah. Is it enough that he should be trapped in a suspended animation on another alien world? Probably not, but. At the same time, you know. I would argue that Brian Cranston's a bigger dick on the, yeah. on the show. Yeah, we're not to the episode yet. I don't know. So, about that, so, so um, my favorite thing about this story, and it's a weird thing. I mean, I liked the automatic oven. I thought that was, you know, that you just turn on the the oven. It's it's an interesting, for 1955, thought of where the future technology would go. Um, but a, a really fun thing that I really liked about the story is that the Rexorians learned how to replicate human behavior by reading romance novels. And I thought that was really funny, and that's what makes him such a good husband. (laughs) And I think PKD was, like, my thought is is that he wrote this story, our theory earlier was that, when we were talking about it, is that PKD was probably stinging from some kind of breakup when he wrote this. Yeah, so he got it all of his angst out in the first half of the story. Right, and he was probably, his... Whoever he broke up with probably ended up with some super awesome guy. And so this idea that this alien invader would come in and be this perfect dude who's just exactly like the guy from the romance novels is just like a really kind of funny thing. And None of that is fact, but that's the story we're going with. That's the story we're going with because it just – there's a couple stories where – That's your TMZ report? Yeah. Well, our friend Evan Lamp – Love conquers all. Our, right, Anthony? Yep. Our friend Evan Lamb from the PKD Book Club, our fellow Philip K. Dick podcaster, um, in his review of this story, he said, We can categorize this story as yet another example of the emotionally abused wife pursuing an affair with a non-human entity. We can put the story <laughs> next to Beyond the Door, In the Garden, or Withered Apples. Since Jill is conscious of the change in her husband and soon becomes aware that his body has been seized, so for all intents and purposes she is having an affair, her husband is still out there somewhere, it is the most convenient sort of affair because everyone else is oblivious to to the change. Her infidelity forever, her secret, is actually quite a wonderful twist on Dick's standard motif of the adulterous wife. Nice. That's what Evan said about it. And so I think it is a motif that he's done in other stories. He's done it in novels here and there. And so I think he is getting a lot of feelings out on there. I mean, we, we, we're, we're projecting a lot, but yeah, we've only read five novels so far. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, we're, we're really naive as far as the people that know all the later stories and all the things he did. Sure, there have been people who've been studying Dick's work for decades now. Yeah, yeah, we're all learning this together, and I'm not, you know, talking about our (laughs) what we lack, but but what I will say about this story is that this story in itself is a very important PKD story because in 1955, when the story came out, this is one of his earliest stories where he wrote about 
what is human? Is this person still human? What is reality? And and so in that, uh, I don't. Well, go I'm ahead. sorry, David. I I just don't think it's that deep of a story. I don't think it has the what is reality and all that crap to it. Well, I think this is a very generic, very very well well done, but very generic short science fiction story. I'm not saying he didn't explore these themes and ideas better in the future, but what, I, what I'm saying is this is an early attempt to do that. And he considers Human Is to be an important story in his development of putting forward these ideas. If you've seen interviews and whatever, like PKD de- definitely felt this was a turning stone story for him. So he... Hmm. he he felt that way, but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's short and it, it's effective. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's a distilled, it's a very distilled idea of how he wants to explore what is humanity. But as far as alternate realities go, I don't see that in this story. Yeah, no, nothing but like you, that. The, you can see the ending two pages into the story. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. No yeah. one was surprised by the ending. No. No. Okay. No. And, and I think, um, you know, it, it, it there, yeah, it's not a super deep story and, and it's very, uh, yeah, it's, it's theme is very much on the surface. I mean, it's in the title. Yeah. And I mean, the foreshadowing is right there. Yeah. Husband's an asshole. Husband leaves. Husband comes back different. Wife says, I, I really like him like that. Fuck him. I like this alien story over. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That, that, was that doesn't make it a bad story. <laughs> Yeah, maybe you should do the breakdown, because that was really fast. <laughs> no, no, I, I just structurally speaking, this is a story that I would imagine you would teach, like, a high school, like, not high school, like, a college course in short fiction on right. how to kind of, how to foreshadow what's going to happen later. We, we, I read it it's and went... sort of a textbook example. Yeah, it, it's a textbook example of foreshadowing, and it has that kind of... That, that I'm sure at the time in 1955, that ending was a little bit of a hook, and people were surprised. Reading it now, I'll fully admit I rolled my eyes a little bit just because it's it's kind of silly, and we've seen I don't it before. Even think it, I don't think it was brand new or anything back then either. But I think in 1955, I I think the wife choosing the alien while her husband is suspended in a, like in suspended animation somewhere else. Yeah, it was a good was, twist. Was probably a bigger twist back then than it would oh, be yeah. now reading. Yeah, it. and you know what I was thinking is because this was the late or mid 50s, this um, would have made at the time a really interesting Twilight Zone episode. I I thought that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it would have been perfect for a Twilight Zone. Yeah, episode. it plays out exactly like a Twilight Zone episode. Right. Yeah. And it would almost be cool to do, um, like a black and white, like make a Twilight Zone episode version of Human Is. It would be kind of a fun thing to do. Um, well, it'll probably happen at some point. Cause that, isn't that how it goes? You take, someone takes a story, they, they make it into a film that is very different than the original material. And then later someone comes along and goes back to the original material. And does a faithful adaption. Yeah, but I, what I'm thinking of is it would be cool to make one as if, you know, to make it try to look like it was made in the 50s would be kind of neat. As a Twilight Zone episode and do like a whole Rod Serling intro and everything it would be kind of fun. He's dead. I don't think you can get him. <laughs> well, you could make it sound like him or imitate him. I don't know. 
Well, it's going to be interesting. Jordan Peele's about to reboot the Twilight Zone, and hopefully they... And I just, on a side note, that if they're going to reboot the Twilight Zone, like, to me, the primary reason why the last reboot of the Twilight Zone failed, but the one in the 80s and the one in the 50s and 60s worked, is that they focused on the actual literature, like, actual fantastic literature and getting real authors. Right. And the last time they did it on, what was it, CW or whatever, <laughs> like, they didn't... They just hired writers and just wrote entire new episodes. And it would be cool to see if they do a new Twilight Zone, if they update stories from like the, like Richard Matheson and, and Phil K. Dick and people like that. Yeah. Anyways. I don't know if they'll be able to get their stories to do since there's yeah. already that kind of anthology series. Uh, well, but that's, that's something that they could pitch it and why it would work. There's David and Larry's hot take on the Twilight Zone. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, so maybe we should give our thoughts on the story. How many, um, Rexorians would we give it? How yeah. many Rexorians out of five would we give this story? Anthony, you want to go first? Uh, Rexorian parasites, really. I yeah. Think. How many Rexorian parasites? Uh, I'll give it. <sighs> wow. Should Ooh. we come back to you? No, it's just this was kind of an interesting experience for me. I didn't feel one way or the other about this story. Mm-hmm. So I'll give it 2.5 Rexorian Parasites out of 5, maybe 3, just because it's a story. It serves a function. It does that function well, but it didn't do – I didn't hate it as much as, say, I I didn't like the Cosmic Puppets, but I also don't think there were enough interesting ideas in here as, say, the adjustment team had when we read the short story right. for me to say, yeah, I, I, I like what's going on here. It just kind of was a story I read. It was just I processed it and then immediately went about my day. So yeah, two point five or three Rexorian parasites out of five. I'm I'm kind of one way or the other about it, Larry. Yeah, I didn't have to struggle at all. It's three for me. This is a very serviceable story. It doesn't have anything to make it special, but it is it is well told and very short story. I want a follow up story of just uh, Lester Herrick stuck in suspended animation being really pissed off that he doesn't have a body anymore. Or like they did in the show, like how did he get to that point? Apparently there's some kind of injection they do and they, there's kidnapping and there was kind of like they Well, hey guys, we're not talking about the the show yet, so let's wait. Yeah. Well, there's like David no, did to me 20 totally minutes ago. It's totally different in the uh in the story. Yeah, well Here's one thing. When you're thinking about how many Rexorian parasites to give this story, there's two ways to think about it. Are you thinking about reading it in 2018 or are you thinking about what the story was in 1955? And I think that if you, through the lens of thinking about when the story was released, it's a better story in that sense. For well, <laughs> but a lot of the themes and ideas we've we've personally seen this same author explore in better, bigger ways, and but we've also had fifty years of different science fiction stories re- doing the theme of what it means to be human, what human means, what human is, what human is. <laughs> so if you think about it within the context of 1955, I would say this is a four Rexorian parasites out of five. If I'm reading in 2018, it's a three. But Holy shit, what are you giving it then? David, I'm so tired of your (laughs) wishy-washy bullshit with this stuff. I'm going to give it four because of what it means for the time. Okay, tough guy. And and what... (laughs) 
I ain't backing Tough down. Guy. No, hey, you're not going to change hey, my opinion. Hey, guy from 1955. <laughs> well, look, I think you always have to look at these stories for the context of when they were written. It's sure. Just, for example, like... But you can't shy away from how it makes you feel reading it now. Reading it now. Oh, I agree. But I think that... I think you have to balance that. And what I was doing, when I'm, when I'm rating this story, I'm balancing those. I don't, I don't know what your view of the fifties is though. You seem to think that like calling someone a Negro is wrong when that was the, the title at the time, but then women were totally oppressed. Well, I think you're talking about a different subject. Well guys, I'm going to go get a drink while you work this out. I'm not talking about the (laughs) politics of 1955, but what I'm talking about is where, if you're so, okay, you're you're not talking about the the domestic situation of women. So what what are you talking? about? What I'm talking about is the ideas in the story. If you went out and bought start, maybe you're a big Paul Anderson fan, and you went and you were like, "Oh man, I can't wait to read the Snows of Ganymede." I'm going to buy the new issue of Startling Science Fiction at my comic shop or wherever you get it in 1955. You're, so you're talking so you about sit- the state of. If science fiction. Right. If you're a reader okay. picking up startling stories in 1955 and you you get to the Philip K. Dick story and you read it, like, well, how are you taking the story there? And I'm trying to balance how that person would have felt with how I feel reading it in 2018. But who's reading it? I mean, everybody can read science fiction, so... Larry, if I, if I may interject for a second just so I understand your question, were you saying if David is continually reading these stories with the mindset of someone in the 50s, then why does it bother him so much when they use the certain terminology? Well, yeah, that was part of that. Yeah, definitely. Well, I just said that. I try to balance my feelings from 2018 to whenever right, they to, were written. back then. I try to balance those, and I think that... that in in some sense, it would be somewhere between four and three in that in that regard. But I I settled on four because with this particular story, I think the themes and the ideas that were presented in 1955 were pretty ahead of their time. And I think you have to put that into context when you're rating a story like Human is, in my right. opinion. And okay. I, I really think that with Human, uh, can I can I ask a question of you guys? And you guys probably know this. Uh, when did Bradbury? start publishing stories in the 50s i mean fahrenheit 451 was in the 50s but the short stories he started in probably in the, in the 50s 40s, as well? i think maybe in the that's something that somebody who well, i guess i could do it but <laughs> let's look up when ray bradborn ray bradborn ray bradbury but I, but there we, were writers like him that were already doing not necessarily the same thing dick's doing here but very similar themed. Sure, we with- read a story from 1935 in the a last thing, yeah. you know that that explored these themes, and right. you know, so certainly Dick was reading stories like this when he was a kid. But I think that that the readers themselves the re- are the well, yeah, I are think, the difference. Yeah, and the, here's another reason why I think this story deserves four Rexorian parasites out of five. Because it is, it is short, but it is a very, like, if you were teaching writing pulp science fiction as a class, if you were teaching 50s pulp science fiction, this would be a great story to, like, analyze and break down how it's structured, how the whole thing is done. Right? Yeah, we already talked about that. Well, that's what I'm saying. So I think that adds to 
what makes the story what it is. Cool. So, Larry, how many Rex Henry and Paris? Oh, you gave your. Yeah, ranking. we're good. We're moving on. Uh, did we ever up, figure out when Ray Bradbury started publishing short fiction? I think it was the forties. Because I because yeah. well, Martian Chronicle was it the Martian Chronicles was published in nineteen fifty. Yeah. Yeah. So it had to be in the forties. Yeah. And, but but and, and Martian right, Chronicles was his first published you're right novel. About, uh, alas, thinking, in that that is similar in theme and everything. So yeah, it's a lesson and all. It's a last all thinking. Alas, yeah, all whatever thinking. it is. Which argue, which I felt was way better than the short story we just read. Sure, sure. But I mean, and it was the, a huge influence on PKD. So uh, we we know that the themes are ones that he was. Exploring in his own mind since he read it as a kid. Cool. Let's talk about Brian Cranston. Oh, I love talking about Brian Cranston. Yeah. B Cran. B Cran. Let's All talk right. about Heisenberg and Babadook. He was in. He was in that shitty Total Recall remake. So let's talk about how which we haven't seen yet. Oh, we're gonna watch it. <laughs> so this Human Is was adapted series finale. <laughs> as, <laughs> what a wet blanket of a finale. <laughs> okay, so the. He, uh, what was that that was me interrupting david on purpose okay the tv show philip k dick's electric dreams was in part a brainchild of brian cranston i know for many years it was rumored that he was trying to get an anthology show of philip k dick stories made um for many years. And I think the success of Black Mirror is what helped them finally do it. Hmm. And Channel 4 in England, who was the original producers of Black Mirror... Uh, Shout out to Channel 4. Yeah, Channel 4 lost... Which does make a lot of really great shows. Sure, like Humans, which is a very PKD uh, show. Right. Uh, Channel 4 lost Black Mirror to Netflix. And I think that's one of the reasons why Channel 4 jumped on board with produ- helping to produce... Phil K. Dick's Electric Dreams. Right. Now, one of the reasons why this show was able to happen is that there were three producers who backed this show. Brian Cranston, Michael uh, Dinner, and Michael Dinner, who was, he was one of the showrunners at the end of Justified, the TV show Justified. And Ronald D. Moore from, shout out to Battlestar Galactica, Anthony's favorite show. (laughs) Great show. Yeah, we all love Battlestar Galactica, and and also love Ronald D. Moore from Star Trek and Deep, yep. Deep Space Nine. Shout out to Edward James Olmos. Yeah. So, <laughs> but important to this story is that Michael Dinner went from show running Justified to a show called Sneaky Pete on Amazon, ah. which stars Giovanni Rabisi and Rabisi. and Brian Cranston. And Brian Cranston and Michael Dinner were the producers and showrunners. Of Sneaky Pete, which was on Amazon, and that's how they got... still is, isn't it? Yeah, it, okay. it, and I like the first season of Sneaky Pete. It's not awesome, but it's it's fun, it's entertaining. But that show is very important to Phil K. Dick's Electric Dreams because that's how Michael Dinner and Brian Cranston uh, got a relationship with Amazon. So this show is a co-production between Channel Four in England and Amazon. Okay, and the reason and. Amazon bought it shortly after the success of the first season of Man in the High Castle. So they were liking Cranston, and they were liking Man in the High Castle. Now, Larry, you asked the question why. There's a weird thing going on with Electric Dreams that the first six episodes appeared in a different order in England than they did on Amazon. Yeah, and so because you watched them in an entirely different order. Because I got them in the English order. 
And what happened was Channel 4 was allowed to air the first six episodes before Amazon did their full run. Okay. Right? So they ran through Human Is on in 2017 on Channel 4. Which was their – Human Is is their uh, episode six, right? Yes. So they ran the, they ran six episodes in England in 2000, at the end of 2017 before Amazon put all the episodes online. Okay. And they, and Amazon put all the episodes in a different order than Channel 4 showed them. So Channel 4 had exclusive rights for six episodes, right? Interesting. So if you were tracking down the episodes from the English feed, right? They were in a different order than when Amazon just put all the episodes out at once. Okay. Right. So that's the difference there. And so Cranston said, and I have this quote, this is an electric dream come true. <laughs> Cranston said at the time of the Channel 4 pickup, we are so thrilled to be able to explore and expand upon the evergreen themes found in the incredible work of this literary master. So. Hmm. That was Cranston's quote. And so what happened was Channel 4 made the show possible because Amazon was waffling. But once Channel 4 picked it up, and that's why they negotiated to have the first six episodes, because they really made it happen. Okay. So nine of the ten episodes for season one were written by Philip K. Dick in a 14-month period from November 1952 to the end of 1953. Some right. of the stories were published later and there were fine. And if you look up the date of when the stories were written, sometimes they say later because there were second drafts. So the people who really research PKD and know exactly when he was writing things, they find, they have copies of the letters where he sent the story and said, I made this change to the story. I hope you like it. Okay. For example, with father thing, there's like three versions. He wrote three versions of the story before the final one came out. Right. That's not unusual, though, for a writer to no. change his story. Right. And as a producer of the show, Brian Cranston insisted he obviously picked Human Is to be the story that he wanted to be in. Because he could have been in any episode, but Human Is is the one that he wanted to be in. Right. And he does a great job. Yeah. And he must Right, have- Anthony? Yep. And so we know that he was a big enough fan that he read enough Philip K. Dick that he he really wanted to make this show happen. And so one of the things he said in one of the interviews that he insisted that this episode be written and directed by women, given it's the central character and knowing that there's not a lot of opportunities for female directors and writers. And so he wanted to give this episode to so he someone here had a lot to say about that. Who? You. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. You might have said that. Now when you add that second part to it. But anyways. If it was just the, the part about perspective. Yeah. I would have a problem with it. But he wants. But if it's for the opportunities and everything like that, that's fine. Right. And so he, that was really important to him. So the director is Francesca Gregorini. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. I know my pronunciation. Classic David pronunciation. <laughs> Gregorini. Francesca is the director of a movie called The Truth About Emmanuel, and that is a paranoid mystery starring Jessica Biel, and it has a, like, like Hmm. what is truth kind of thing going on. So I think that's how they... That's not part of the Emmanuel series? (laughs) I don't know. She also did a coming-of-age movie called Tanner Hall, but 
She doesn't have a huge filmography, but I do want to see that Truth About Emmanuel movie. It looks really interesting. And the writer is um, Jessica Mecklenburg, and she's a writer-producer on Stranger Things and the Netflix show Gypsy that had one season starring Naomi Watts, which um, was an okay show, but it was just basically a standard drama. But she has lots of producing credits, uh, more than writing credits, but... right. And just the last thing I want to say about the production is that the actors, this has a really strong cast. The two, obviously, Brian Cranston in the lead role. Heisenberg. Or in the, not the lead role, I would say the secondary role. Heisenberg. Yeah. And, um, and then in the, the, the role of the wife is played by Essie Davis, who is a, Austra- Duke. who's an Australian actor who's known for starring in the movie, being the mother in Babadook. Which is a excellent Australian Technically, horror movie. She is the Babadook. So if you haven't seen the Babadook, it's yeah, Anthony's awesome. on his best behavior today. I'm not taking the bait. Okay. So she was in the Babadook, and then also one of the other main characters is played by um, Liam Cunningham. Liam Cunningham from Game of Thrones. Um, Sir Davos on Game of Thrones. One so, of my favorite characters on that show. That makes sense. I don't even remember the characters enough because I only watched the first season of Game of Thrones and got bored. But yeah. it's funny because we all he, all of us here have a, a popular show that we tried to watch and then went fuck this. Yeah, right. <laughs> David's was Game of Thrones. Mine was Mad Men. What was yours, Larry? I don't know. Probably all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you 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 claim you weren't going to start writing watching new series. No, I don't. I I try not to watch series until they're done. Until they're done. Until oh, they're okay. canceled. Fair. Okay, so. Larry, how about a story breakdown for the uh, film version or the TV show version of Humanist? Oh, yeah, no problem. Same shit happens, <laughs> only it's slightly different. There you go. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, there's some significant changes. Right. Yeah. So- That's what we're supposed to talk about. <laughs> Why am I doing a breakdown? All right, so let's, t- <laughs> let's talk about the differences between the short story and the television episode. Uh, first of all, it has a lot more military aspect to it. Um, yeah. It's much more military sci-fi than the short story is. So the, the wife character, Jill, in the story, she's more kind of leave it to beaver, kind of... Um, she's a homemaker. Yeah, housewife. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's like just a regular housewife. In the TV show episode, she is... Um, she has a role in the military. She in is the government. In the government, She's not in the uh, yeah. yeah. And so she has like a role in the bureaucracy and she bureaucracy bureaucracy. Uh, <laughs> she is important. And You're gonna have I, to work that word in more. Yeah, and she is a more important character. She has more agency, and she's just more. Oh well- yeah, and the, she has a ton of agency in the. Yeah. In and the we, show as compared to the story. And we all agree that that makes the story a little bit stronger in, in the episode. Yeah. yeah. And Plus the, the action, of course, makes it stronger. Yeah, because she's able to be... And you know what? On a purely production scale, that means she doesn't have to be at home as much. <laughs> that she can be on the same sets. Yeah. Is the government thing. So that, right. I think in that sense. And by the way, this episode was filmed in Chicago, which is really interesting for a British production but um and the father thing was filmed in chicago too and it's weird because some of the episodes of of electric dreams were filmed in chicago and some were filmed in england so 
they had like two different kind of productions and that's really kind of an interesting thing. Hmm. So, um, as far as the story goes and the different things, I think that's a huge difference. There's also some asides where we see, um, there was a scene where she puts on kind of, she does kind of a VR. Yeah. The, the Jones made, uh, sex club. Yeah. She goes to a VR sex club, like, because her husband isn't, providing her with what she needs at home, uh, which is, uh, and she goes to this kind of VR sex club that looks a lot like to us. It reminded us of the world Jones made. Um, the second, novel yeah, the, by the club they go to the basement club they go to in, in Jones. And I thought the scene was pulled off pretty well for a show with, you know, I'm sure they didn't have a huge budget for every episode. So everything that they are able to pull off sci-fi wise, you just always have to keep in mind the limited budget that they had. And I think they did a good job with that scene. And then there's kind of a cool moment where the husband walks in and she kind of switches over to this like nature running right. <laughs> program, which I thought was, was a cool little detail. Yeah. And, uh, Cranston being a military general made his, his stuffy sort of asshole character seem a little, a, a little more, uh, realistic. Like the way he, he was angry in this, in the episode was much more realistic than the way he was angry in the story, in the short story. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to, this is a big hot take, but Brian Cranston's a good actor. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Shit, David. Wow. Um, we all know this. I'm being sarcastic, obviously, but Brian Cranston is a really good actor, and it is on dis- full display in this episode. He has lots of really excellent little moments. Yeah. And Brian Cranston is worth watching this episode for. But I would also argue that Essie Davis in the role of the wife is also excellent in this episode, and she has very good moments and so i think on all levels i think this episode has good direction as well because even in the side characters and the moments that there's lots of really good moments and i think in that sense it made me interested to see what this director has done and it it adds to my desire to see the truth about emmanuel yeah the uh um I, i don't know if there are any real negatives that i took away from watching watching this episode yeah there weren't any moments that i was like oh jesus that's stupid <laughs> and i do i really enjoyed humanism I and mean, we'll get to our, our our final rexorian count later but but i think th- there was other things that really just added to this there was a lot of really good choices narratively speaking right that that um what's her name jessica mecklenburg made in the script for example, showing how the mission on Rexar 4 uh, went bad and you saw yeah. the parasites entering the ship. That was a really good moment and it and it adds to the paranoia and that's something... We, and they looked great too. Yeah, they looked really cool and like the design of their spacesuits was kind of neat and retro, retro looking. Yeah. And and um, I mean their, their <clears throat> suits with the weird diagram in the front were kind of silly looking they had kind of a because future look to them lots of design in this movie has a because future look to it yeah and granted they don't have a ton of money but um so i think they did well with what they had but i think some of those choices really you know added to the story 
Um, well, to me, the biggest choice uh, that I liked was uh, turning it into a young romance at the when he comes back. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't know who he is, and he's trying to ingratiate himself, but it turns into an actual romance, like a, a new couple. And I, th- I thought that was amazing. And I think that that's something that PKD wanted to hint in the story. But yeah, he, he did, but it didn't come through as clearly as it does obviously in, in the, the show in yes. the show yes that was much better done here and so the theme of what it means to be human and how it relates to loving someone and what you see is that the wife character i think her name's still jill and no it's vera vera that's right so vera actually falls in love with her rexorian parasite <laughs> um well Sounds no she bad, does but it's it's true. She falls in love with the Rexorian yeah. parasite version of her husband. Yeah. And she accepts that she knows that he's been replaced, which is similar to the story because in the story, Jill's like, I like this version of my husband better. But in the story, she just kind of likes him better and she accepts him. In the episode, she falls in love with yeah. the Rexorian parasite. And I think that's an improvement into the episode. Well, I think there's less of he- there's less of a hesitation about it in the adaptation on Electric Dreams where in the story she's at first kind of put off by him acting differently and she's right. a little bit in the adaptation but the hard turn into falling in love with the parasite in the story is much harsher than it is in the adaptation. The adaptation is a nice gradual ebb into it. Right, but uh, and it also was it was done differently in in the show. Because he didn't come back like super weird like he did in the short story. You know, it at the beginning subtler. he was. Yeah, it, the, was it's more nuanced and subtle. Stuff. Yeah. Well, that's because the Rexorians learned from romance novels. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't learn from romance novels in the episode. But there was also all those flying Tesla coils. They, they cut out the brother. They cut out the cat. They cut out the kid. Right. In the show, and I thought those were good, good changes. Yeah, those were all good changes, and I think, and they made, and so what we learned about the Rexorians is what, whatever they probably instead of reading romance romance novels might have read the Kuma, the Kama Sutra, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we get um, a uh, Rexorian um, Vera sex scene where we get a what. Larry believes is a Brian, stunt ass, a stunt ass for that. Brian that Rexorian fucks. Yeah, yeah. And so, either I, that or Brian Cranston has a really toned ass for an old man. Well, he might. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, he might. So, listeners, stunt ass. Let us know. What Call you, in if you know if it's a stunt <laughs> ass. So, if you think that's Brian, tweet at us at Dickheads Pod. Yeah. Do you think that was Brian Cranston's ass? Or? Hashtag stunt ass. I'm glad we're keeping it really academic now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we definitely believe that the narrative. Hey, we didn't put ourselves in a role where we were going to show our ass. I mean, that's a little weird, don't you think? Yeah, he chose that as a producer. He knew he was going to do that. So, I don't know if he, like, when he was, like, looking at the script, if he was immediately like, I gotta get me a stunt ass, or if I'm just gonna show... It's about time people see my ass. Yeah. Well, I think we saw a lot of Brian Cranston on Breaking Bad. And t- I'm sure that's not the first time Cranston's gone most, like, fully Definitely nude. in his tidy whities <laughs> Yeah. In the pilot for Breaking Bad. Yeah. Well, and pretty much 
all of Malcolm in the Middle. He was really cleaned up in Sneaky Pete, so I don't know. But anyways, enough about Brian Cranston's ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that overall, I think the changes were good. Is there any changes that you didn't like? between the Larry did you have any No changes? but I did have one other change that I liked it's not a change it's an addition they added a a um subtle uh a subtle theme of xenophobia and, and uh prejudice mm-hmm. and especially you you see it clearly in the court scene where they're they're saying, you know, at the beginning, they're saying these people are monsters. These aliens—they're not even are people. monsters. They're not even human. Yeah, they're yeah, Brian they're Chris. here to yeah. destroy us. Everything is terrible. Blah blah blah. But at the end, we, we see that that was just prejudice. Just the, were they at war with the Rexorians in the story? I don't remember. No, we were stealing their oxygen. Oh, good on us stealing their oxygen. Yeah. So they had a legitimate reason to. Steal people. Well, yeah. Uh, and infiltrate. I mean, yeah. Okay. So it was it, them or us, as Cranston put it. Yeah. There, I, um, you know, I gotta say, I think one of the, the arguments for Electric Dreams as a show was that they really wanted to get right the, the PKD themes and ideas. And they, that's how they sold the show. Uh, when, um, yeah, because as, as we've seen in the movies we've done so far, I, it, there's some been some really good action. There's been some really good characters and all that stuff, but thematically they haven't shown much of the much of what PKD wrote about. Yeah, you know? and I think in that last scene where you have Brian Cranston kind of um, explaining the whole point of view of the episode towards the end, it almost sounds like that like he like the screenwriters read that quote that we read from PKD about the story because mm-hmm. it's uh, it's almost like they're explaining the same thing but you know one of the things i know evan pointed out in his podcast about human is um or, or the review that i read online i didn't listen to his podcast about human is but um he points out that the last thing that he says about the story is what we will become it's almost like this idea that we we are going to be something different in the future. Like PKD is like talking about that, and we have changed quite a bit from the people that he was that he saw in 1976, just from like the amount of media that we're inundated with. Right. And so I think at the end, like it may be a little on the nose, the Brian Cranston speech at the end. Yeah. Or a lot on the nose, <laughs> but I, I appreciated it. So, um, and overall, I think if we're gonna, um, I would say I would give this episode overall five Rexorian parasites out of five um, because it has flaws um, along the way. Um, Wait, mostly, it has flaws, and you're giving it a perfect score. Well, no, 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 no. It has little flaws, but most have to do with the production constraints. In my opinion, narratively, so production value is the it, yeah, value. and I'm not going to count against that uh, when I'm figuring out how many Rexorian parasites to give this sure. episode. And I think overall, I think it's a good PKD adaption. So I want to reward it with five Rexorian parasites out of five. Okay, Anthony. 
It's an interesting question because I agree with David's assessment that it is probably thematically the most faithful Dick adaptation that we've seen so far. Mm -hmm. And I think they really did kind of nail everything that Dick was going for in the original short story. Much like the story for me, the episode didn't do a whole lot for me, honestly. Except for that uh Except, for, except, for, well, yeah, but no, that's not going to surprise anybody. <laughs> uh, but you did comment on the music, which the we music didn't was talk good. About. The, the I like, I like the score. The performances good. are good, but again, like the story, I kind of walked away from it, going, "Yeah, it was fine. It was right, totally right. serviceable. I enjoyed it." It, it, it uh, David already spoke on the production value, which is not as top tier as it could be. And it definitely seems like when they're boarding the ship and they're getting attacked by all the Rexorian Tesla coils, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of goofy, which is fine. Uh, I, I think I, I, I unfortunately, as, as much as I agree with David, I'm going to have to give it probably three, three and a half Rexorian parasites. And that's not me saying I disliked it. Dude, I'm you just, just chopped one of the Rexorian parasites in half. Cool. <laughs> I, and that's not, me saying it's bad or people shouldn't watch it. I think it's a great adaptation. It just, much like the story, didn't resonate with me, and that's that's totally fine. Right. Larry? Well, I'm right in the middle there. I'm going to give it four whatever right. sites. Rexorian parasites. <laughs> yeah, four them. Rexorian Tesla coils. Yeah, yeah, those things. Now, you watched this. We Anthony and I watched this for the first time today, but you watched this episode before. Yeah, I, I've seen it before. And the same thing, I... As I saw it last time, it drags a little. Just there's some scenes that the dialogue goes on a little too long. There's some dramatic pauses that could be cut pacing-wise. Other than that, I thought it was great. Now, Laryls, when you watched the episode, because we, the two of us had read the story just recently before watching the episode. Mm -hmm. But you watched this episode originally having not read the story. Was it a different experience there? After reading the story? No, I mean, when you watched this episode without having read the story. Because the ah. first time you watched it, you hadn't read the story. How did you feel? Was, I, it, was it a different experience for you that time? I would say it was a little more engaging. Because you didn't know anything. Yeah, right gonna, away. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. I mean, there there was a little more... Uh, uh, again, the story doesn't leave much mystery. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if if you hadn't read the story first, there is a little more mystery. Like... That whole scene in the tub is much more uh, frightening than than we looked at it when we after reading the story, right? Because we know he's not going to kill her. We know the whole thing that's going to happen there. Yeah. So when he reaches his hands down, like he's going to choke her un- or drown her under the water. Yeah, I forgot about this scene. That was kind of a weird scene. Like, but yeah, see, it I- makes it makes a lot of sense if. <laughs> If you don't know what's going to happen, right? Right. All right. So let's imagine for a minute that we've logged into our Amazon account and we're connecting to our pink laser beam of truth and we're sending it back in time to 1981, let's say, and shooting this into Philip K. Dick's brain and he's watching Human Is. (laughs) Wow. All right. So what do you think Philip K. Dick would think in 1981 if he was watching Human Is? Um, to, you know, what would he think of this episode? I, for the first time, I think he would really like this. I'm going to agree with Larry. Yeah. I, I don't I have think, a whole lot to say about this, though. I, I think he would yeah. have enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I think he would have, he would have seen his, his work in their, in their work. 
Yeah. So. And I think he would have accepted all the changes and kind of felt like they were, they were good. Uh, yeah. It, like you were saying, like we've said before, you know, when people were approaching him, approaching him about movies and stuff, he seemed to be on board with that idea, yeah. with the idea of the movies, but it was the not getting it thematically that he was worried about. Yeah, and I think he would have been really pleased that they got the themes correct. Yep, yep. We all agree. So, Yay! So 1981, Philly K. Dick, he's watched... He's watched Philly K. Philly K. to his friends. Philly K. to his friends. He, he, he enjoyed this one, so... <laughs> Um, until next time, when we shoot that pink laser beam back to him, we'll find out what he thinks. Right. Um, so would we do anything differently with the episode? Like, I think we all kind of liked all the choices. No, I liked the choices they made. I'm, I'm, I'm still confident in the future. Someone's going to go back to do a more faithful version, but I don't know that you could, unless you make it period and do like what I was talking about, like doing like a a twilight Twilight zone Zone throwback. to make it look like a throwback episode, which I think would be fun and neat. Like, yeah, it, I'm, I'm saying something like that would happen eventually. Yeah. So but he, that's, that's the only thing I, I think they did an excellent job. Yeah. I mean, and by that, I mean like with the production design to make it, I mean, yeah, I we would got want, it. Yeah. We got it, David. Okay. We know. <laughs> that's the only thing I would do differently, but I like the way that it's done here. So that's human is under an hour. Any final thoughts before we get out of here? Like anything you guys want to, uh, our, probably our next couple episodes are going to be, we're going to have a bonus episode about Alas All Thinking. Mm-hmm. That's going to yep. be coming out soon. And we also have an interview with Evan Lamp, um, who also does the Phil K. Dick book club podcast, yep. where we review the, all the books that we've already done in the interview. We go through Eye in the Sky. Yeah. And he has a totally different. Uh, perspective on things. Yeah, and so it's a meeting of the nerds talking about PKD. So that's coming up soon. But our next movie, or our next <laughs> book we're doing is I. Wait, no. no. Oh my god, time out of joint. Time that's out of the joint. one. Thank yep. you. I got it. I got yeah. it. So, I'm not reading the back cover again. Yeah. So look for all those episodes. Plus, we'll be recording the Warren uh, a special and bonus episode. Of our, the our next movie episode with is, awesome uh, author Brian Evenson. Yes. Yeah, we're doing that one. Uh, <laughs> the next movie one we're doing is another episode, right? No, we're doing. Oh, I, well, I'm going to be doing another episode of Electric Dreams on what podcast? Uh, SFF Audio. And what are you reading for it? The The Father Thing, which is a very Invasion of the Body Snatchers type story, but was written a year before the novel that Invasion of the Body Snatchers was based yeah. on. You think he's pedantic now? Wait until he's had a rehearsal and we do that episode. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll do Father Thing way later. I think the next episode we're doing as Dickheads is the is Imposter starring Gary Sinise. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that movie's terrible. Well, we I'm glad we had our dickheads time. meeting on the podcast. Yeah, so we got a lot of fun stuff to listen to coming up. So see you next time, dickheads. And, and keep it paranoid. Oh, yeah, that's what it is. Good Enjoy job. your paranoia. Good job. Good night. <laughs>